welcome to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. As we all know, tennis can be a very frustrating sport. So frustrating, in fact, that players talk to themselves a lot and not always in a productive way. This is what in sports psychology is referred to as self-talk, and we all have it. Sometimes it's in our head, and other times it's out loud. If you have struggled with your self-talk in the past, this is a great episode for you. So since self-talk is such a common theme for tennis players, Brian and I wanted to learn more about it, and we decided to reach out to an expert on this topic, who also happens to be a very accomplished tennis player, Dr. Judy Van Ralt. Judy is a professor of psychology at Springfield College, a certified consultant for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, ASP, and is listed in the United States Olympic Committee Sports Psychology Registry. She has presented at conferences in 18 countries and has published more than 100 articles in peer-reviewed journals. Her research has been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the NCAA, and the International Tennis Federation. She served as president of the American Psychological Association Society of Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology, and as president of the International Society of Sports Psychology. And as Josh mentioned earlier, she's a fantastic tennis player. We actually both have some personal connections with Judy. I have known her since 1995 when the two of us were back then. There was actually a 5.0 circuit in new england we were both playing that before moving into the opens um and judy's been ranked number one in, in a number of categories uh, both i think women's open as well as other age group categories so not only is she an expert in self-talk and in sports psychology but she's um just a great tennis player who if you were to watch her play is extremely mentally tough and i know josh you actually uh, met judy this past year right before the pandemic hit Exactly. Yeah, my my action's a little bit a little bit more recent. Um, in early March, um, which seems like a lot longer ago than than seven months ago, um, I was presenting um, my master's uh, dissertation actually, um, which is about which is about uh, mental toughness within college tennis, um, and I presented that at the conference that they held at Springfield, the uh, ASP Regional Conference there. And uh, shortly after that, as, as we all know, the, the world uh, really was turned upside down by, uh, by COVID-19, um, but really enjoyed that conference and the opportunity to present that research there and um, met Judy at that point. Um, and I think, uh, I'm, I know everyone will really enjoy this conversation. Yeah, I think it was a really great conversation. And I think just going into it, the one thing I would ask listeners to do is, is to Listen in for some hints that can help you develop the self-talk that's going to work for you. Self-talk is a very individual type of thing. Um, and so I hope that you can get some some clues on how you can use self-talk in a much more productive manner so that it helps you get what you need in specific moments in a tennis match. Um, so with that, let's listen in to our conversation with Judy Van Ralt. Well, today we want to welcome a very special guest, Dr. Judy Van Ralt. Judy, thank you for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast. Nice to be here, Brian. Thanks. You're welcome. And uh, um, I think what we'd like to do to begin is to understand a little bit about your background, uh, because I don't know if everybody knows. I mean, obviously, you're a professor of psychology, um, but maybe not everybody knows. People in New England will know that you're a tennis player and quite a good one. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into tennis 
as and then maybe how did you transition to sports psychology, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Um, I started playing tennis as a kid and I grew up in a relatively rural area where um, there weren't many things I could do independently and a neighbor had a tennis court that I could walk to. And so I started playing then. Um, I started playing competitively and playing tournaments. And one of the things I noticed pretty early on is the player who was the very best tennis player didn't always win the matches or the tournament. And I found that kind of fascinating, probably because I wasn't the very best tennis player, um, but also because it seemed like there were a number of things that were going on with tennis that would uh, maybe allow for a look into factors other than just how well you hit a forehand. And I think that was part of what got me interested in sports psychology and sports psychology and tennis at a young age. And that interest has continued to this day. And about, you know, how old were you when, when you started to realize that? Because I think some players come to that realization early. Some never come to that realization. So I, I think I was a, a pretty uh, quick study in, in figuring out that. Um, I My first match, tournament match I ever played, I uh, lost 6-0, 6-0. Um, it's possible I won one point in the match and uh, my tennis instructor who was a, a, an outstanding teacher said, you know, well, you started this way and you won a point and, and soon you'll win points and, and then games and then sets and, and one day you'll win matches. And so um, I think that was exciting. But also when I looked at who was winning the matches you know, it became clear there was some variability. Um, the other thing I noticed at about age 14 was there were a lot of girls in tennis who between age 14 and 16 started becoming more interested in boys and their social life and less interested in competitive tennis. And um, I thought that if you had the mindset that allowed you to stick with it, even if they were better than you, if they dropped out, then, you know, then you were in the game. And so, um, those observations, I think, were um, ones that were very clear to me and encouraging to keep working hard and learning all aspects of the game. And like you said, you became more interested in sports psychology. And, and I think one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you today is that I think an issue that many tennis players have is the nature of their self-talk, which I think is one of your, you know, areas of, of study, one of your uh, things that you've decided to dedicate much of your, your time to. Um, I guess maybe at a high level, what do you think are the big challenges about tennis that causes self-talk to be somewhat problematic for players? Well, tennis is a really hard game. And so I think that it can be extremely frustrating. Um, I have a colleague who's a distance runner, a marathon runner, and he talks about, you know, you run a marathon and at the end, whether you did well or you did poorly, it's all out there. You've got nothing left. And, and, and maybe you even feel like a, it, sort of jokingly, but you want to die because you're just so exhausted. 
And I said, well, the, it's sort of like that in tennis, except it's so hard and so frustrating that there's plenty of matches that you finish where you want to kill yourself. And you're still dead, but you're not maybe as exhausted. So um, I think self-talk comes into play in part because the game is so frustrating. Um, I saw it when I was in graduate school and I was watching, um, I, I went to Arizona State University and there's a tradition of very fine tennis teams and, and tennis players there. And um, I was matching a match with someone else and a player missed a shot and shouted out pig, you know, and it, the, the other person who wasn't a tennis fan said, you know, what, what's that? Is that a tennis thing? It was like, no, the athlete was too slow. They didn't get to the ball. That was maybe because they ate too much. And if they ate too much, they were a pig. And therefore a missed drop shot was pig. Um, and I don't even have to explain another athlete who shouted out, eat another donut. Why don't you when they missed a shot? So, um, Although body weight is not the fundamental issue, the, the self-talk and how that affects players and their ability to play was something that's, that's pretty visible in tennis um, that we can all see and hear. Yeah. Some of it we can hear, probably more than we probably should, right, Josh? You were just mentioning that earlier, that we often hear a lot of self-talk. Some of the, some of the craziest things, things that people wouldn't, wouldn't say to any of their loved ones, they, they'll say to themselves or call themselves on a tennis court. I think we see that a lot. Um, so I, how did your academic interest in, in self-talk get started? So um, one of the, I guess I would say I, I was interested in sport performance and for my master's thesis in graduate school, there was at the time a company that was producing a product that guaranteed you would improve your game if you watched their video. And um, it would subliminally implant better tennis in your brain. And you couldn't buy one and copy it and share it with friends because the secret sauce that was in the video wouldn't, wouldn't be copyable. And so you had to buy their product. And so for my master's thesis, I tested that video product against videotaping athletes and also the regular feedback that coaches give to look at their um, performance and found, uh, I know you may not be surprised to learn this, but the expensive video did not um, cause them to learn um, better than the other, than the other techniques. And as we were doing the study, we noticed and, and also noticed observing other matches that um, people explain their performance in, in kind of complicated ways. So um, one of the things that had struck me, I was, I was in a graduate class and learning about how people explain success and failure. And the theory I was learning about is, um, showed that people tend to take credit for their success and to blame external factors for their failure. So why'd you do well on the test? I study hard and, you know, worked. And why'd you do poorly? You know, that professor, whew, unfair, you know, and, and you see it in, in, in other areas as well. And then actually I wasn't watching other players. It was myself. I was at a tournament. I had a friend come with me and I lost to a younger player. And in the car on the way home, I said, wow, if only I had been more aggressive and come to the net more. And my friend said, so I was trying to um, blame myself for failure. 
And he said, oh, no, I, I think that wouldn't have helped at all. When you came to the net, n- nothing good happened. So really to blame an external factor for failure, which should make me feel better. And um, as you are nodding, I see that you can understand I didn't feel much better. You know, and I went on and, you know, well, maybe if I just, and he was like, oh, I don't think so, no. And um, so in the end, um, he didn't have to walk home, but I thought about it and it really made me think (laughs) that this uh, self-serving bias that applies in most arenas where we want to blame other things for our failures and take credit for our successes doesn't always happen in sport. And sometimes in sport, blaming ourselves, if we care about it, we want to perform better in tennis, uh, can be an effective strategy. And when I looked at attributions or explanations people give, um, I studied actually college players during uh, NCAA tournament, warm-up tournament, and looked at how they explain their successes and failures. And that really led me right into what are they actually saying to themselves? And that seemed to really tie into how people performed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I just remember myself as a young player. I grew up at a tennis club where, um, and this is in the 70s, so tennis was super popular. Um, probably eight, nine, 10 years old. And there are older kids there, 15, 16. And then many of them are very good. And their self-talk, their audible self-talk was sarcastic and funny. I was entertained by that. And they got a lot of attention because of it. So I ended up copying what they were doing, which ultimately really wasn't a great thing for me. Um, Although I would say, I think every one of us may react differently to it. Some of us are able to get over it and move on and, and, and others can't, right? But the content of my self-talk in general wasn't, uh, wasn't terribly helpful. I didn't really fix that, Judy, probably until I was about 30. <laughs> so it took me a while. Um, but how do you think, maybe that's one way people learn self-talk is by observing others and noticing it. But how are, what are some other roots or causes of that? Um, I think it's, you identified a a number of things that make self-talk so interesting and complicated because you talked about how it affected you and you talked about in different circumstances, different people respond differently and maybe you do as well and that you learn some from other people. And then also some of it really reflects how you feel. I mean, the, you know, that people say things, they don't have to hear anyone else say it. It's how they feel in that moment. And so I would say there are a, there are a number of avenues um, that there are some people who never heard a horrible self-talker and they themselves are, you know, very self-critical. So I think there are, are a range of processes And I think for me, I was interested in particularly what are the effects on on the player and on the performance of the self-talk? Because I think watching other tennis players, your own experience, um, not just tennis, but other sports, there are many ways um, that people learn self-talk. And and I'm going to throw in um, one other area that's just interesting to consider. Um, Very young children talk to themselves, you know, so... And they often say things out loud when they're learning, like when they're counting, it's one, two, and two more is three. And so one of the ways we learn is by saying things out loud. And then as adults, we tend to not 
say things out loud because we sound maybe or feel we might sound not as smart or as competent. Um, but it is the way that humans learn to use self-talk in some capacities. Um, so I just wanted to say it's it's not crazy or wrong to um, or silly to um, use self-talk, that, that people talk to themselves across the spectrum. Absolutely. Um, and I, I guess um, also based on your research and based on some of your personal experiences, how do you conceptualize um, self-talk? So if you had to you know, break it down, um, how would, what would that process look like? Yeah, so I think um, early on, because uh, we watched a lot of tennis players, we looked at self-talk and gestures because there's a lot of calling a higher being. Um, people sometimes hit themselves in the leg or the arm to kind of get going. And so we saw um, all of that, the fist pump, you know, is really part of, um, that goes along with self-talk. But as we thought about it, um, to be precise and really look at the talk part of self-talk, we began to look at not gestures, but self-talk and sort of separate it from images and really look at what we're saying in terms of words or language. So um, talk that's addressed to the self um, could be out loud, it could be internal and uses language is the definition that we used. And I would say um, in response to something Brian said, um, he, he mentioned the sarcastic self-talk that it got a reaction. And so we also have looked at self-talk people use and looked at the reaction that other people have to it, because even if it's directed at yourself, um, there may be some effects that happen that affect your opponents as well or the crowd. Oh, sure. I can. It just, I, I, I wonder if you, you know, based on the populations that you've studied, um, have you perhaps seen a shift in how self-talk manifests itself in college tennis over the years? Um, just having coached a lot, I just feel like there's so much of the commands after individual points than there used to be. But maybe that's just my – that's anecdotal. What are, you, are you noticing anything like that from a research perspective? Um, so um, overall, studying the the self talk usage that that players are using overall, I um, I don't have a database dating back, but I do think that there are norms in terms of what's acceptable. And there was a time where if if you hit a shot and you celebrated your opponent's loss, that was disrespectful. Yeah. And now it's seen as appropriate or encouraging. I I did. Um, Recently, I think I was really struck by it, you know, the level of some players. And I just asked the player, like, how was that for you after the match playing that come on player? And um, the player I was talking to said, oh, that's what people do. I didn't even notice it, which was um, interesting because, I, you know, I would imagine some of the come on is for you and some of it is to catch your opponent's attention. But if there's enough of it, it tends to probably have less of an effect. People you know, become numb or, or used to it. Yeah. People adapt sort of like, I think uh, people adapted to Andy Roddick's serve at one point, right. At, at you know, beginning mm -hmm. of his career, nobody could return it. Now everybody can return that. And uh, so maybe to a certain extent like that. Um, 
let's go just a little bit deeper into self-talk as a, as a construct. Um, because I know in, in your research, you talk about system one and system two. Can you explain that? Because I think it could be helpful for people to understand where different types of self-talk may come from, from a cognitive perspective. So I'm going to back up a little bit to, sure. to bring you to, to, to what happened with that. There, there was a time when we were working as our research group and we said, you know, like, what do we know about self-talk? And wouldn't it be great if we could kind of consolidate and put together everything we know about self-talk? And so we had a group and we came up with a plan. We were going to read every research study that had ever been published on self-talk and summarize it. And we would then be able to answer the question, what do we know? And it's kind of seems like reading the encyclopedia or something, you know, like what a task, but we had a team and we were eager and we were going to, you know, we were going to get the answer. So we searched the literature, we collected the articles, we made a spreadsheet. We, we were all ready to go. It took us maybe a year to begin. We were going to get new articles coming in. We're all sitting at a table. We have a plan of how we're going to analyze it. And we start and everyone's reading and quiet and thinking and look around the table and everyone's doing that except for Andrew. And Andrew was a philosophy major. So Andrew kind of moves at his own pace. And, and so we're, we're okay with that. And, you know, kind of like, all right. And we wait and then we're working and working. And finally I say, um, you know, what is it, Andrew? And Andrew says, if we already know everything that we know, then why would we talk to ourselves? And so we kind of pause and we look at Andrew, and that's a good question, but then we're really motivated because here we are, day one, we're doing the thing. And so we like, okay, whatever, yeah, go, Andrew. And then we keep reading. And still he's sitting and sitting. And finally, we're like, all right, question two, what is it, Andrew? And he says, when we talk to ourselves, who is talking to whom? And there's not one study that we've copied or downloaded that addresses either of those questions. And we just kind of stop because if we can't answer that or have anything to say about that, then we don't understand self-talk fully. And so we set the whole giant spreadsheet aside and we take a deep dive into the literature to answer some of those questions. Who is talking to who? And why would we talk to ourselves? And we eventually come to Daniel Kahneman's work. He's a Nobel Prize winner and wrote Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and really came up with or reviewed these ideas that there are some processes that we have when we think that are, that are very quick. That's the gut feeling of, yeah, come on, or you know, um, a less favorable term, oh gosh, <laughs> maybe when you miss a shot or something stronger that just kind of comes out, it's very quick and often emotional gut feelings. And then there's a much more logical, intentional process. Maybe that's a self-talk that when you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking, oh, wow, this is what I want to do moving forward. That's what I intend to do. And you think about it and you remind yourself and you, you actually do it. And because these ideas were ones that the ancient Greeks had, Sigmund Freud had, they came with labels and also some assorted baggage. You know, with Freud, it could tie into sexuality and her childhood. With the Greeks, there were other issues. Um, Kahneman named them system one and system two. Mm -hmm. 
And the gut feeling quick stuff was the system one self-talk that you just blurt out, which, which just comes from maybe spontaneously the heart. And the system two is most of what was in all of those research studies that we didn't review for that giant paper, which is what do you intentionally use and what do you try to use to help your performance or to respond? So system one, your gut feeling. System two might be what your coach or you tell yourself to do. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. And I know I've used that a lot with my um, students to let them know that, uh, you know, some of this negative stuff, it's going to come up. And it's really more, are we able to respond to it with a, a system two statement? Or do we let system one just run the show? Because that can happen. Yeah, and I think um, sometimes your system one self-talk, like what I hear you saying is if you get too negative, you may start a spiral out of control where you're so negative that you're not playing anymore, you're distracted. Um, And I think that's problematic. Sometimes when you're negative, you're giving yourself a clue like, hey, I just shouted that. I apparently am losing it here. And so you may not have to counter that negative self-talk. You may need a drink. You know, you may need to walk away and take a deep breath. So um, I don't always want people to be fighting themselves with their self-talk. You're a jerk. Well, no, I'm not. Well, you might be. Well, you're (laughs) so that for some people is too much. Uh, But that system one self-talk can be an early warning system. And if it's going all the time, it's really hard to play good tennis. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually, I really liked that, that question from Andrew about, um, you know, b- breaking it down in a more philosophical way about who, who really is, who am I talking to or who's talking to who here? To me, it actually reminded me a lot of um, the book, the, the Inner Game of Tennis, um, breaking that down to self one and self two and, you know, the, the, really the mind and the body and, you know, who's, who's talking to who here. Um, so I, I really like that, that story. Um, a, a question is how can we do you for, in your view um, can can system one be changed can it be trained to be um, to be more rational and to um, to be improved over time so that that automatic response is a little bit more productive yeah so um, I think you ask such an interesting question because Sometimes people imagine that their gut feelings are things that can't be changed. Um, I remember when one of my children was small and I said, what did you just do to your brother? And he said, I hit him. And I said, hitting's not okay. And he said, I had to hit him. Like, you know, a voice spoke to me from above saying, you are unhappy with your brother, so you must hit him. And he did not perceive it as a choice at all. And I I think some people feel that way about their self-talk, like it just comes blurting out. But we know with high-level tennis players and also people who play in tournaments that if you say some things, you get a warning or you lose a point or you're thrown out of a match. So um, Roger Federer, for example, was um, a, a child who was not the kind of tennis player that many people would be proud of to have on the court. And when he was no longer able to play, when he behaved in that manner, he was able to change what he what he did and said. And 
Uh, it appears that Novak Djokovic, um, although it wasn't what he said, it was his behavior when he had a gut feeling to act in a particular way, um, is able to uh, change that to a, to a certain extent. So with some practice, um, that can be changed. And also, um, you know, it, it's not easy to change. It takes some effort. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's actually what I went through, Judy, like to help me. And I, I think and perhaps it was the right age for me to dive into stuff like uh, Stoic philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, uh, but also understanding the nature of the sport a little bit more. Because I think many of us as tennis players put an overemphasis on the importance of points when points are really just a means to an end. And once we realize that the only thing is really changing from point to point is the probability of one player or another winning that particular game or even the match. And those were just some thoughts that as over time, like, oh, oh, okay, I get that. I haven't really lost anything here. There are very few points that during a match where you actually lose things of consequence on the scoreboard. It's either a set or the match. Other than that, you're in it. And it really helped me realize, okay, I have another opportunity on the next point. But I know getting one to that realization is is not an easy journey. Um, But I feel like the one more learns about this very devilish sport mentally, perhaps that can also, because it feels like system one in a way is like your early warning system. It's your threat detector. Something's Mm -hmm. going wrong here. And very often it's overactive. Well, and I, I think you made a, a nice observation that, um, that, that sometimes when athletes and tennis players in particular start to um, uh, lose their focus, it's because they're spending a lot of time in the past. I, you know, I can't believe that happened. I should have won that point. I should be beating that player. Or in the future, I'm only a few points now. If I win this next game, something good is going to happen. And that um, spending time in the present um, is likely to be, for the bulk of the time, is likely to be helpful. Now, it is useful to reflect on the past, right? Because if your past strategy isn't isn't, uh, working, then having some reflection on the past or some anticipation of, of where you are in the future can be valuable. And that's what makes it so tricky. Because if you only needed to stay in the present all the time, then we could work on that. But when you need that movement of a little bit um, of reflecting and using that moving forward, it really makes things complicated. Yeah. To me, it seems like you know all the sports psychology has that little bit. You're on a fine edge constantly of... Mm-hmm. You know, it can't really be one way or, or, or another. Um, and I know everybody's different. Everybody's, you know, personality, what sort of self-talk works for them is different. But um, as part of your research, do you look into specific exercises or interventions that can help people discover what the best self-talk might be for them? Yeah, you're you're asking, Brian, the million-dollar question what is the best self-talk for me to use under which circumstances? Because the the self-talk you would use in a a lesson or a training session might really be different from what you need in a tournament match. So 
in a lesson, maybe you had, um, if you're a kid, you might have spent a long time in school, had other responsibilities. Then you come to the lesson, you're tired and you really need to push yourself and you're doing something hard and working on it. So maybe that self-critical voice gets you fired up. You believe you can do it and that gets you moving. And then in a, in a training match, you know, you've seen this person before. So what you're focusing on with that opponent might be different than someone you haven't played a lot or someone that you see in a tournament. So I think being aware that the context matters and that the self-talk for one place might be different from another place is really helpful. Um, I think of it a little as the tournaments, we tend to, to rev a little high, be excited and fired up. Um, so, you know, to be aware that you, you could push yourself a little further than you need to go. And then um, it may be really helpful or appropriate to fire yourself up. So some experimentation is, is really helpful. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Billie Jean King and pressure is a privilege. You know, so I'm going to imagine that she might have said something else to herself when she was in a lesson. But pressure is a privilege is a way of saying I'm lucky to be here. I already accomplished a lot and here I go. And so that maybe is a little more calming and focus on the moment kind of self-talk. Um, that helps for some people, but there's others who, you know, what would be bad for you who has become more uh, mindful um, might really work for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and another way, another way that uh, self-talk talk is often broken down is, um, and this is more on the positive side, is more instructional self-talk um, versus motivational. Um, in your in your research or or in other research um, out there that that you've explored, um, is there an advantage to using um, one versus the other, or you know, it's ideally using a combination of both? But how? Um, what, what, what are the advantages of using, using each type? So I, I'm going to share with you uh, a description of two specific studies that, um, that we conducted comparing uh, different types of self-talk. Um, one of the things we found is that for some people, adding self-talk actually disrupts their performance, that um, it's too much or they only need to use self-talk in certain circumstances. So in one study, we had people doing golf putting and we found that instructional self-talk helped them be more consistent when they focused on the instruction. They chose their own instruction and we gave them a list of things that golfers say to themselves. We did a survey of what golfers say. Uh, our negative self-talk list was X-rated and we couldn't publish it. But uh, in any case, it was what they actually say to themselves that they shared with us. Um, and that the instructional self-talk led to more consistent performance and less disruption. So some of the more positive or motivational self-talk and also the negative self-talk could be disruptive for people overall. Now, any one individual could be different. Um, more recently, we did a study with self-talk um, and scuba divers. And we were interested in, does self-talk help you when you're in a sport where you could die? Because if you do your things wrong, then you can drown. Um, and what we found, again, was all things considered, the instructional self-talk um, helped people 
um, be more confident and um, help their performance when they were getting certified and taking their certification exams. So um, that says to me, there may be individual differences, but if you were trying it out, um, some instructions that work for you. And the instructions could vary. So if you're a beginner, it might be uh, racket back, uh, ready position, racket back, step. And if you're a more advanced player, it might be uh, follow through, racket head speed. So the type of instruction might change, um, but that could be helpful. When you're in a tournament match, if you're paying a lot of attention to your strokes, um, that suggests that you that may be the wrong place to be f- focusing. Um, and we do have a sense that on match day, you know, your fitness is the fitness you have. Your forehand is the forehand you have. And if it's working today, fantastic. And if it's not working today, then you have to figure out how to hit something else. And that's where your self-talk might help calm you down, get you moving and hitting more backhands or more volleys, um, doing whatever it else you need to do to perform. Yeah, I think motivational self-talk um, really all about like kind of moving your arousal levels or confidence levels, you know, and I do, I feel like even myself in a tournament, I'm, that's probably what I'm using more. Because as you said, if I'm thinking instructional, I'm probably uh, probably in a losing situation at that point. Um, and even if I do, I want to make sure it's ex- sort of with an external focus. I know for me, more about hitting targets or hitting a trajectory rather than, oh, what's the angle of my wrist on my forehand right now? You know, then that I'm just going to overthink that that piece of things. Um, so I think it's good to understand uh, the the purposes of those. Um, do you? I don't know if you look at this at all, Judy, but. Um, pairing self-talk with some of the other interventions that are rather popular in, in sports psychology, you know, imagery is a very popular thing. Novak Djokovic practices or has some sort of practice with respect to visualization. Um, have you looked at how self-talk can work with that type of thing? Um, so I'm a, a, a fan of self-talk, but I also know that there's a great deal of variability in terms of how self-talk affects people. Mm. And one of the things I've, I've run into when working with athletes is an overabundance of self-talk. So they get, people get, you know, they're just like, I can't get out of my own head. So I love Brian, your description of your self-talk, which might be go for the target. So that kind of self-talk, it's very in the moment. You're not thinking about the past or the future. It's really, this is this point. That sounds like you might be someone who your self-talk is effective. But there's other people who are, I can't believe I missed that. I said to go for my target. I didn't go. What am I thinking? Look at the match over there. And then you're stop being so negative. You need to be positive. And so um, one of the one of the pairings with imagery that I found for people during competitions is to identify Uh, rather than fighting themselves, to use an image that might um, convey how they'd like to feel. So um, some years ago, I I had a tennis player who described themselves in a match feeling like they wanted to be stalking the ball, stalking their prey, invisible, dangerous. And, And so a black panther was how they wanted to feel like quick. You don't know when I'm gonna strike, I'm calm and I am dangerous. And so 
using that when the self-talk started revving up, just kind of not fighting against it, but switching to that kind of image, um, that person found it extremely helpful. So self-talk was helpful in some contexts, but um, being able to have other tools, or I guess we would say a plan B or a plan F um, that you can use um, when you're um, in need is really a nice thing to have during a match. I love yeah, I, I love that um, the discussion about the present moment and you know not thinking, being caught caught in thought about what's been happening or you know whatever has happened leading up to the match or d- the during the match up to that point or what might happen if if I win this game, if I win this point or if I you know if I lose this point. Um, how about pairing pairing self talk with mindfulness? Because as we know, the being able to focus on the present moment is very challenging for a lot of people and, and can be, uh, oftentimes needs to be trained. Yeah. So it's such an interesting question, Josh, because mindfulness is sort of being in the present moment and aware and self-talk is being aware of your cognitions and using a tool. Whereas if you were, you know, completely in the moment, you wouldn't be maybe as much thinking about your thinking. Um, but I, I do think that you're right, that our experience has been that um, when people are playing, and I guess we'd say in the flow or in the zone, they tend to be aware of the past points enough to make good decisions, to be playing in the moment and hitting their targets and then ready for what the future brings and able to kind of seamlessly do that. And when they're stuck in one place or the other, the past or the future, that sort of bringing themselves back to the moment is a way to do that. That's a mindfulness approach and that reminding themselves with self-talk can really be helpful. Um, I remember playing a, a, a national tournament myself and uh, on grass, which is not a surface many of us get to practice on and playing an opponent who um, was, uh, we'll say a challenging opponent and thinking about, you know, I, I beaten this person in the past and now, you know, it doesn't mean anything. If I don't beat them now, right, then it proves that are blah, 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 blah. And then using really what you said, Josh, of um, it's what an opportunity to play on grass. It's so beautiful here. And just a, and this is a, it's a really nice moment to get to play this match. And you know, if the other person wins, they win. And if they don't win, they don't win. But the the moment of being here is wonderful. So it sounds so, um, I guess I'd say, so sports psychology that I I, I apologize to the people who are cringing. But um, it is can be really helpful to bring you back to I love playing tennis. And it's great being out here. Um, and just th- the rest doesn't matter. And that can be extremely helpful in also playing better and enjoying the game. And if you enjoy the game, then you're able to train harder and continue to play better. I mean, I like that story because I think really, Judy, you just showed a fundamental shift of like kind of not wanting to be in a situation to embracing it <laughs> and an understanding it. And I think that's a huge part of handling any sort of challenges that come along in tennis because many come and and if we can just embrace it and accept it it is what it is so i might as well just throw my best at it and and enjoy that process and learn from it as opposed to avoiding it which is the only thing i'll learn there is i shouldn't have avoided it i should 
try to do what I what I, I should be doing. Um, given that self talk is is obviously still a major issue with tennis players, let's talk a little bit about what I I think is a problem in all areas of science is that gap between research and application. Um, how are we doing as tennis coaches with helping players um, develop self-talk? Or do we need a better connection between the research side and the practitioner side? So um, I'm not going to speak for all coaches, but I do remember a, a team that I watched and I saw a player after a match and the, the player had played a, a decent match and was just beating themselves up, extremely verbally negative. And the coach came over and kind of comforted that player. And there was another player who had lost and, you know, was more like, you know, that's, that's what happened. And the coach came over and really, you know, talked to the player, like, you need to care, you need to try, I don't know what's, you know, like, step up your game. And so my observation was that when the player was negative in training and self-critical, that the feedback they got, they, they were like preempting the coach. And that the feedback they got from the coach was, you're really trying, you need to calm down. And in a way, that was teaching the player to continue to be negative. Um, and, you know, and it's a caring coach who sees an athlete being very negative and struggling, who tries to comfort that coach and help them. And if, a, if an athlete doesn't have enough commitment, you know, it is a caring coach who's really trying to help push an athlete further. But I can see that there are many factors that are involved in uh, what's going on with self-talk. And so I think it's helpful for coaches to learn about self-talk, to be able to share information with their athletes and realize that there may be many different approaches. Um, I'm gonna share one other study we recently conducted. Um, it was golfers. Golf is easy because they stop in between. So tennis is hard because it's ongoing. Um, and in this study, Golfers were hooked up with a beeper and the beeper went off randomly while they were playing and they weren't asked really about their self-talk at all. They were asked, what, if anything, were you experiencing when the beeper went off? And so someone would say, well, I was saying to myself, you know, you got it. And then the researcher would say, were you saying it in words? Was it a feeling? Was it an image? Like what specifically was it? And people really got trained to identify, was it talk? Was it a feeling? Was it an image? Was it nothing? And it turned out there was this huge range. So there were some people who talked to themselves quite a bit. And there were other people who basically went through the day and the beeper went off and they're like, nope, nothing. <laughs> I just am. And I wasn't really noticing anything at all. And, um, you know, the self-talk was some of it was, you know, I, you know, racket head speed on the golf club, but some of the other self-talk was those people have a very ugly hedge. Why is it on this golf course? Um, so, you know, it wasn't all that, that we might've imagined and that a very little bit of targeted self-talk could go a long way. Um, and that the people who study and are interested in self-talk might be the self-talkers among us. 
So I feel like I revealed myself a little as uh, telling the story as a self-talker who studies self-talk, but I know that that's not as important for everyone. So coaches who are aware of that and can kind of ask or even try some drills and some competition and games with, you know, self-talk and less self-talk to individualize things for their players, that could be helpful. Or they could reach out to someone who's knowledgeable about sports psychology and bring them in, really see what does their team want to work on. And if this is an area, get some support uh, so that they can support their athletes. Absolutely. Um, I'm just, I'm just thinking back to your, uh, to your story about, um, you know, maybe, maybe not playing your best, but, you know, noticing what a great opportunity it was to be playing on grass. I've, actually had that same uh, thought myself recently as I've uh, started uh, working at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And I have that same opportunity. And, you know, I, it's tough when I'm reminded of that. It's, it's, uh, it's tough to be upset in that moment. I also had a situation where it was the only time in college that I lost six love, six love. Um, it was during our spring break trip out to, uh, out to California and we were playing at Indian Wells which if you've, you know, if you've been there and your other listeners have been there, it's one of the most scenic places in tennis. It's just a, such a gorgeous location. And I just remember being frustrated with my match, but looking around and seeing what, what a beautiful landscape, what an opportunity this is. Um, so being able to shift that, that focus um, onto something a little bit more productive or, or even just philosophical of thinking about, you know, what an opportunity, you know, why do I, why is it that I play itself um, can, can be very helpful. Um, so I guess, I guess um, another question that I have is um, for tennis players that, that may be listening um, any other um, and, and, you know, we, we talked about there's, this is not a one size fits all type of thing. We, we, it's not that we're just going to say, this is the best, you know, that that's the million dollar question. This is the best type of self-talk. Um, but I guess just, you know, more general advice um, for tennis players that, that are listening um, and how, how to improve that self-talk, whether that be internal or external. So uh, I think, Josh, you just gave us all a great example of your self-talk during what um, some people might think is a really crummy match and that you could have been really angry and frustrated. And if you were angry and frustrated all the time, you probably wouldn't be playing tennis today. And here you are working at, uh, in a fantastic location. So uh, I, I hope that those of us in, in New England and maybe around the country and around the world will get to see that in person because it's a, it's a special place there. Um, so I think, you know, reflecting on your self-talk, if you find that you're beating yourself up a lot, um, it makes it really hard to enjoy tennis and it, it might help you improve on a particular day, um, but in the long run, it's just kind of a, a crummy way to be. Um, and so I would recommend, you know, maybe shifting to some of the imagery approaches to give yourself a break or think about the kinds of things you might recommend to a friend or to another player um, that, that could be helpful and, and try it out. Um, most of the time, um, thinking about or trying out what works for you can be helpful, usually short phrases. So, you know, when you said targets, that's, uh, you know, the, the word targets may remind you of what you're trying to do. Um, 
enjoy might be um, something believe as a, a professional tennis player uh, used or wrote um, could be something that you put um, that you write on your shoe could be a, a note card that you put in your tennis bag. I think Serena Williams sometimes writes down some tips for herself and those might be a strategy, but those also could be, um, you know, could be self-talk words that might involve uh, joy. Yeah. Um, it could be a reminder about a, a strategy, you know, uh, backhand. Um, so I think brief, um, something that you feel comfortable using, and then to be able to reflect on it and learn for it. If it, if it works, stick with it. Um, I'm going to share some, some great wisdom um, I had from, I'm going to call the person a consultant. Uh, I was playing at a, a national tournament and I was playing the person in my age group who was number one in the country, a top player in the world. And um, I was not number one in the country or in the world. And um, I was playing the match and I had a parenting mishap. So my son was at the match with me and sitting on the sideline. And he was a, a young, younger child at the time. So I had to kind of keep an eye on him and play my match. And as I'm playing, I see him stand up and start to walk away. And so we finish the game and I go over on the changeover and I say, what are you doing? You know, are you okay? And he says, oh, mom. I'm going to get some water. I know right where it is. I'm fine. And if it's not working, try something different. Wow. And I did. And it was extremely helpful. So um, that little tidbit of piece of self-talk from a, a very wise uh, coach. So where do you learn it from anywhere that it's helpful for you um, is some self-talk that I've used. It's not very complicated and um, simple, direct, um, for me, a little bit funny because I appreciate snarky children. And um, so um, I think that that's some of the things that people can use and then to see if it, if it works or is helpful for them. Judy, that's fantastic. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast. This was an awesome conversation. I know uh, I really enjoyed it, learning more about you and it just about self-talk in general. And I'm sure all our listeners um, have enjoyed it as well. So I just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk about tennis and self-talk and to join you as well on this podcast. Thank you both. Thank you, Judy. Well, that was a great conversation with Judy, and we'd like to uh, to thank Judy again for coming on the podcast. So, Brian, what was uh, some one of your big takeaways uh, from that conversation? I think the thing that um, I find really fascinating about self-talk is that we actually have different self-talk systems in our brain. So, as Judy described, system one versus system two. Uh, yeah. For those of you who are interested in reading more about that, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, and slow is, is a good resource for that. And so system one is more that automatic system. It's sometimes barely controllable. It's probably not even controllable in certain ways. But system two is that slower and hopefully more rational perspective that we can give. And that's a, that's a big part of what many of us use as tennis players when we're talking to ourselves in motivational ways or instructional ways, um, not that system one can't be trained as we asked in there, but at times it's um, it needs to be followed up um, with some 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 more rational self-talk. 
um, some more motivational or instructional cell phones. So I thought that was, it's at least good to understand that, Josh, that that's where some of these things are, are coming from, right? So, um, well, that's our show for today. Once again, many thanks to Judy Van Rolf for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag of TennisIQ. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your platform of choice, which includes YouTube, so that you can be notified of new episodes. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.